0: If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 on page 962 of the ESVP Bibles, otherwise 1 Corinthians 16, we're going to take the entire chapter and we're going to close out this book and this sermon series, A Roadmap for Raw Christians. We've reached the end of the road. This is the last chapter and we're going to conclude today, um, Lord willing, we will start a new series through the Gospel of John in the next couple of weeks. But for now, 1 Corinthians 16, and we're going to be reading all verses 1 through 24. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we acknowledge that it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is breathed out by you for our instruction, for our correction, for our building up, Father, we acknowledge that your word is truth and that we ask also that you would provide the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit so we can see that truth so that you can imprint it upon our hearts and that we can go out having been taught by your word so that we can live more rightly before you so we can glorify you uh, and live in a pleasing manner before you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Mom was taking her kids to the library in the summer, and she was bringing a couple of their friends along with them. And she'd done this before, and it did not turn out well. Her her kids were loud enough, but it was something about getting their friends together. They were downright rowdy. And the last time they went to the library, they were running all over, they were laughing and poking at each other and they were shouting from across the library calling each other's names hey look at this come over here and so she decided that this time it was going to be different and so she pulled up to the library and turned off the van but kept the doors locked and and one of the kids said what are we doing and she looked in the rearview mirror and in a calm and yet commanding tone said we are going into the library and you will be quiet you may have a chance to pick out a DVD or a book or whatever you want but these are your marching orders head down, mouth shut walk quietly does everybody understand and there was just kind of some mumbling and then finally one of the youngest children said well what are marching orders she said directions that you need to follow now let me hear it, what are your marching orders and there was a chorus of mumbling ahead and head uh, quiet, she said nope we're not going in until you tell it to me and get it right. And so after a couple more practices, they finally got it. Heads down, mouths shut, walk quietly. Marching orders. In 1 Corinthians 15, we find all kinds of words in this last chapter. It's been called a, a catch-all because there are a lot of different things included into the last chapter. And we're going to cover them all. There are directions on giving, There are travel plans. There are instructions of welcome, uh, to to welcome and respect other gospel workers. There is an autographic comment by Paul. There is a warning curse, and there is a benediction, and then there is a final expression of of love. But in the midst of all these final words, Paul gives these raw believers in Corinth their marching orders. They're, They're kind of nestled in, and and sandwiched in between everything else that's going on, but he he includes them. What are they? What are these marching orders that Paul leaves the church with? And then the other question we want to be sure to answer today is, are they still valid for the church today? Do we still need to hear these these marching orders that were delivered originally to them? Let's look at the chapter, all verses, starting at verse 1. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go for I do not want to see you now just in passing I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries when Timothy comes see that you put him at ease among you for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning your brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now, he will will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the, the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up your, for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people." The churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, at the beginning of this final chapter, Paul turns his attention to the topic of giving. And specifically, this is giving towards a collection for the saints that are in Jerusalem. And and we might think, well, now wait a minute, why do they get a special collection? Is it because they were uh, more important than anybody else? Is it because the Jerusalem church, you know, starting in Jerusalem, is it because they were the first ones, did they get a special offering? Or does this set any kind of precedent for today? Is it, is it the big churches or the churches in the, the big metropolitan areas, do they get uh, a special offering? No, it's none of those things. Extra-biblical literature tells us that there was a famine going on in that region during this time, before, during, and after this letter was written, and food prices or grain prices had tripled. So the saints in Jerusalem were struggling, literally, to put food on the table. They needed help. And so Paul has called on a lot of the churches, including Corinth, to take up a special offering. He's gathering a collection that he's going to bring or that is going to be sent to Jerusalem to help those saints that are in need. What's significant is that it, he doesn't leave it up to the, the church to decide how they want to give. He directs them. It, he says, as I directed the Galatian churches, so I'm going to direct here, direct you. And direct here means give an order. He's ordering them on how to give. And this is what we see on the first day of the week on Sunday. That's regular giving. Each of you means everybody gives something, that's universal giving. And stored up, a designated savings, that's disciplined giving. And then finally, as he may prosper, that's proportionate giving. So the command or the order from Paul is regular, universal, disciplined, proportionate giving. And we know there's one more component that's sometimes included because we can turn to 2 Corinthians. And that's the second letter that Paul wrote to the same church where he's also talking about the collection and giving. And this is what he says. We want you to know, brothers Listen to that language. So uh, Macedonia, meaning Philippi and possibly Thessalonica, but Philippi for sure. in their extreme poverty, meaning this was a, a low-income church. This, this was not a, uh, a Corinthian boomtown of commerce and trade. This, these were the poorer saints. And in their extreme poverty, they gave generously, and not just proportionately, but beyond their means, he says. They were begging for the opportunity to give. Sacrificial giving of their own accord. So that's the fifth one, is occasionally sacrificial voluntary giving. So the whole point uh, of this is to ensure fairness. The whole point of proportionate giving is fairness. If everyone gives at the same level as God has blessed them, then they're all giving proportionally the same amount. In verses three and four, he says at the proper time when Paul comes to Corinth, the money will be sent off to Jerusalem with a formal uh escort and, and uh, a letter. And now why would they need a, an escort to send this gift? Why would they need a, a special group to send this? Remember, first century, no checks, no electronic funds transfer. Uh, they had coin, and that's it. So they're taking a collection from all the saints and they're giving it over a several-week period and they're going to send it all at once to Jerusalem. That's a lot of coin. You, you want to send that with at least a couple strong-armed men and to make sure that gets there. There were robbers, there were bandits. Um, imagine a couple of heavy leather bags full of coin or a big chest jangling around as they, as they move it from, from cart or to, to boat or, or something like that. That would draw attention. And so they needed an escort to get it there safely. You might not want to talk about what's in your bag as you travel there. And then in verses five and nine, Travel plans. After the directions or the orders on giving travel plans, he says, I want to come and see you, spend the winter if possible. He's writing from Ephesus, and he said, I'd like to go by way of Macedonia. That would include like Philippi, Thessalonica. He has to kind of go across by land uh, over the Aegean Sea to get to, to Corinth. And then he says, so that you may help me on my journey. That's code for support me. that that wherever you see that popped up, that means support him with either money or food or clothing or a uh, traveling companion or an assistant, anything he needs really, he would expect to receive that from them when he arrived. So this was very common in the first century. It was hospitality, but it was more than that. It was expected. It was just expected. For now though, he says he'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, remember under Mosaic law, Pentecost was this 50-day period after Passover, and the day of Pentecost was that 50th day, and that's probably what Paul has in mind here when he says he's going to remain until Pentecost. And then he says he's staying here because a wide door for effective work has been opened to him along with many adversaries. And that about sums up the work of the church since the time of Christ, isn't it? There's plenty of work to be done, and there's always some kind of adversary Timothy, Apollos and others uh, Timothy remember was Paul's younger ministry companion he was his colleague, he traveled with Paul, Paul taught him Paul discipled him Paul gave him opportunities for, for leadership and growth, Paul calls him my true child in the faith elsewhere when he, when he writes to Timothy we have First and Timoth- 2 Timothy in the New Testament those are letters from Paul to Timothy So here Paul tells the congregation to welcome him, let no one despise him, and help him on his way. There's that code again, help him on his way. That means support. Food, clothing, money, anything he needs. And he also tells them not to despise him. And we can only speculate why he would tell them not to despise Timothy. We know elsewhere in 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy himself, let no one despise you because of your youth. Could be maybe part of it, but I think maybe part of this answer also is that because he's coming on behalf of Paul. They understand he's, he's an associate of Paul. He, he, he's, he's in lockstep with Paul. He, he brings the same teaching as Paul. He, he, he brings messages from Paul. He's very closely related to Paul. And remember, there were some opponents of Paul in Corinth. And Paul says, look, don't treat him like he would treat me. If you're, if you're opposing me, don't oppose him for my sake. Don't despise him. And then verse 12, Apollos was encouraged by Paul to go with Corinth, but apparently Apollos didn't want to go. That, that's all we have, that very short statement. Uh, maybe you'll come later. Remember, Apollos is this gifted speaker that's mentioned at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. He's one of those... People that the people in Corinth were kind of forming up in back of and saying, this is our guy in their worldliness. They were, they were rallying around Apollos. Um, he was uh, a gifted proclaimer who also shows up in Acts. And then we come to the marching orders. Here they are. Note, let's, let's just put it out on the table. These are the marching orders, verse 13 and 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, That sounds a lot like chapter 1558, where he said, be steadfast and immovable. Very similar. Remain fixed on what you've received. What have they received? Sound doctrine, teaching, correction, instruction, faith in Jesus Christ. Because there's going to be pressure coming against you to fall away. Act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Be strong and courageous and do everything in love, do both. He's given them the, the content in the letter. Remember, this, this letter, if you've been with us for the whole journey, there is all kinds of instruction in 1 Corinthians. I mean, they covered everything. Worldliness for a, for a few first chapters, um, sexual immorality in the church, um, abuse of the Lord's Supper, um, taking lawsuits to court. I mean, you, you name it. He covered a lot of topics with some specificity. He got very detailed in his instructions. Now, here at the end, he tells them how to move forward. And this is general instruction. These are the marching orders. These are the directions that they need to follow. Be vigilant. Stand firm. Be strong and courageous. And don't forget to do everything in love. Those are the marching orders. Let's move on to 15 through 18. Timothy, Apollos, and others again. The household of Stephanas, they also were mentioned in the beginning of the letter as being a household that Paul baptized. Remember, Paul baptized households, mom, dad, children, regardless of age. They came to faith as households. They were baptized as households. And now he's mentioned here, along with a few other people, and it seems like these people were engaged in the work of the Lord, and Paul tells them to receive them and respect them because they labor in the Lord he gives thanks for the coming of the, those three men he names he asks them to be recognized we really don't know anything else about them this is really the only thing we know about them that Paul mentions them in the end of 1 Corinthians 15 or 16 excuse me 16 and then in verse 19 the churches of Asia send you greetings remember this isn't the continent of Asia this is the Roman province where where Ephesus was located And then he makes specific mention of Aquila and Prisca along with the church that meets in their house. This is the husband and wife team that is first mentioned in Acts 18 in Corinth. Paul met them and they were tent makers by trade, you remember, and so Paul stayed with them and he worked with them. And uh, they were kind of a dynamic duo that that held church in their home and it appears at this time they've now relocated and have um, been working with Paul in Ephesus. And then in verse 20, some final greetings are mentioned, along with a directive to greet one another with a holy kiss. This is given to the church. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And, and maybe some of the men are looking around and saying, yeah, let's, let's bring back the command of the holy kiss. And some of the women are looking around going, let's not bring back the holy kiss. They did that because that was appropriate in that culture, at that time, in that context, and it meant something different to them than it does now. It's still important to greet one another with a friendly welcome and greeting, and we do this by shaking hands. In fact, we did it this morning. We do it most mornings. There's a time before the worship service where we welcome one another and greet one another by shaking hands, because that's universally understood in in this time and age in our culture as a friendly greeting. Um, We wouldn't kiss one another because it doesn't mean that same thing anymore. For example, foot washing is another example of something in the New Testament that was done as an act of hospitality and it meant welcome. It meant I'm serving you and greeting you and and providing hospitality to you. If someone came to your home today and you tried to take their shoes off and wash their feet, it would probably be misunderstood and it would not be received well. Well, the same thing with a kiss. If you, before the worship service, moved in to give somebody a kiss, they would probably misunderstand that and it would not be received well. Rightly so. It doesn't mean the same thing. Now, are there still some cultures today where that goes on and it doesn't have any kind of um, you know, weird physical contact meaning? It's just a friendly greeting? Sure. Then go ahead. And, and maybe there's some cultures where they don't shake hands or kiss. Maybe there's just a polite bow and that's the same thing. Whatever it is, that that outward form of the command may change, but the command itself remains, and we still carry it out by shaking hands. And then verse 21 through 24, closing remarks. Paul would usually dictate his letters. That was very common, and it appears that Paul did that as well. He would would have someone else actually write it out. He would simply speak the letter. But this is an autographic comment because... At the end, he writes this portion with his own hand. Now, sometimes letter writers or speakers would write out the last portion to authenticate the letter, to make sure the the readers understood that it was really from them. Sometimes they used it as a way of emphasizing a final point. I I really want to drive this home, so I'm going to write it in my own hand. Um, There were other reasons as well, maybe a personal touch. With Paul it usually falls into that category of authenticating his letters. He he does this to make sure that they understand this is, in fact, from the Apostle Paul. And we know that because he tells us in another letter. 2 Thessalonians 3.17 says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So that, that tells us that, He's doing this to make sure that they understand it's from him. It's real. It's a genuine apostolic letter. And then closing remarks again, verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our first thought, probably I'm reading that is, um, okay, um, yes, uh, it's true. If someone doesn't love the Lord Jesus, that means they're not in Christ and they don't have faith in Christ, and that means that they're still under the curse of sin and death. Yes, uh, I guess that makes sense. It rings true. It's in accordance with the rest of Scripture. It seems a little abrupt, but okay, Paul. And while that's true, it, it is true that if you're not in Christ and you're under the curse of sin and death, I don't think that's what he's getting at here. I think there's a point. Look where he's putting this statement. It does seem rather abrupt, if that's all it is, but look where he's putting it. He just authenticated the letter by saying, I'm writing this with my own hand, it's really me. And now he makes this statement about no love for the Lord. It's one last authoritative command to obey everything that is written in the letter. Remember, he started this letter by being upfront with them and making sure they understood that he's coming with the full authority, the full representational authority of Jesus Christ as an apostle of the Lord. What he's writing are the Lord's words. They're not his opinion. They're not his take on the Lord's Supper abuses and the, and the cultic meal participation. This isn't just a Paul's opinion. It is from the Lord. In fact, in the body of the letter, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, the things they am writing to you are a command of the Lord, he stated that a couple times. Now here at the end, this is a warning curse to his opponents. He's saying, look, if you don't obey everything that's been written in this letter, that everything that's come before it, then you don't love the Lord. Because these are the commands of the Lord. And if you don't love the Lord, then you're to be cursed. So this is one final strong command to obey everything that's been written in the letter, worldliness, divisions, lawsuit among believers, sexual immorality, pagan idolatry, cultic meal participation, abuse of the Lord's Supper, disordered worship, and then, of course, a disbelief in the resurrection. All of that, he's saying. That's from the Lord. You need to obey. O oh Lord, come. This is an ancient prayer, praying for Christ to come. And that, immediately following the, the command and the curse, reminds the readers, Jesus is coming. And it is in your best interest to make peace with the king and to obey the king before he comes. And then verse 23 is a final greeting and a benediction, praying for Jesus' grace and love to be with them. Marching orders to the church. There's a lot, there's a catch-all. This is a chapter that he squeezes everything in, but in the midst of it, there's those marching orders. If we had to summarize this last chapter, we would say Paul's giving the Corinthian believers instructions on how to give, towards a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. He's also telling them his travel plans and asking them to help support all gospel workers when they are in need. He gives them personal greetings, but his final command is a strong admonition to believe in the truth and to stand on it. And finally, he links their acceptance of biblical truth with genuine love for Christ. That's how he ends the letter. Let's take a look at a couple of things in depth. We moved pretty quickly over the giving, and I want to come back to that. So we're going to talk about giving for a minute. And if this is, for whatever reason, your first Sunday here, and you may be thinking, oh, here it comes. Pastor's going to talk about giving. I've I've seen this before. I've seen churches where that's all they do is they talk about giving and giving more, and they need to really dig deep, and here it is again. Here's what you need to know about that. The only time Peace Community Church preaches, or the only time I preach on giving from the pulpit is when it's covered in the text. And we preach through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter. So, for the vast majority of the time, we don't talk about giving. But when it does show up in Scripture, we need to talk about it. So yes, you just happened to catch us on a Sunday where we're finishing out this book and so we're going to talk about giving. Let's review the, the command, regular Universal discipline proportionate and at times voluntary sacrificial that's the command that Paul gives for giving there was a a bible study one time that was going on at a church and they were meeting in someone's home and they had four or five couples sitting around in the living room and for whatever reason they they maybe it was this chapter but they happened to come upon giving in the new testament and and the newer couple that had just joined, it was just kind of checking it out and said, yeah, the last church we were at, they actually expected people to give 10%. They took that literally. And, and there were people that they gave 10% of their gross before taxes. I can't believe anyone would do that. And they kind of chuckled. And then there was a pause. And then one of the other couples said, well, we do that. And, and the other couples chimed in, so do we. Yeah, we, we do too. And in fact, everybody there did except the new couple. And that's, I think, a couple of things. One, it's a tendency, a reflection of our tendency to think that everybody's at our same spiritual level, right? If, if we're not that holy, then of course no one else can be. But I think it also points to the fact that there are a lot of people that understand what the scripture says on giving, and they try to follow it to the best of their ability because they want to obey Jesus. And that's what's going on here. Paul's telling them, regular, universal, discipline, proportionate, and at times sacrificial, voluntary giving. Because he's Lord of our lives. He's Lord over everything, including the finances that he's allowed us to temporarily be stewards over. We've heard the phrase, you can't take it with you. That's literal. We're, We're not taking any of this with you. We are temporary stewards, and we will all give an account to how we have managed the money that God has allowed us to have while we've lived this life. So those are your instructions. Now, if you're a believer here this morning, then you're going to read those instructions, regular, disciplined, proportionate, and a time sacrificial. And you're going to want to obey that. I, I don't have to uh, get underneath with a big fiery pep, top, pep talk. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit do his work If you're a believer, then you know this is true, and you're going to want to obey this just like you want to obey any other command in Scripture. You're going to be like those those Macedonian believers who eagerly begged for the opportunity to give. You're going to understand that this is an act of worship. And just like any other biblical teaching, if you're a believer, it will grieve you to disobey this. It will bother you. It will grieve you to disobey this or even to let it slide. I know of a man uh, several years ago who did just that he was a, he was a regular tither, but you know things were tough and and expenses added up and for whatever reason he stopped tithing and and he talked about it his wife and and they understood and then it, then it happened another month and then another month and It just kept piling up. And then he kind of reached a a point where he needed to decide, am I going to do this or not? Because right now I'm not. And I used to. And he was so convicted by the Holy Spirit that he decided to go back and retroactively pay back everything that he had missed when he allowed it to slide. And so he did. He emptied half his savings, half his family's household savings. Now, some of us might look at that and think, well, if you're an unbeliever, you might look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody's, nobody's asking you to do that. You don't have to. Even as believers, we might think, oh, that's kind of rough. Um, why not just cut your losses and then start again and just you know, repent and believe and just start fresh and don't worry about the back stuff. But for this particular person, they couldn't. It bothered them so much. And to this day, as far as I know, that man has lacked Nothing never lacked shoes on his children's feet. He's never lacked food on the table. In the Old Covenant, God accused his post-exilic people of robbing him because they did not give in a disciplined and proportionate manner. We can turn to, turn to the book of Malachi. Remember, that's a series of, of charges that God brings against his people. And one of the charges is, you're robbing me. And the people say, how are we robbing you? And he says, in tithes and contributions. And then he says this, Malachi 3.10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I've talked to some believers that that are confronted with this verse and others in scriptures, and they say, Yeah, I, I hear you, but that's old covenant. And I, I challenge you to show me in the New Testament where it says believers have to give 10% because I'm not going to let my conscience be bound. The New Testament, as I read it, says you have to give joyfully. And if I, whatever I give, if I give joyfully, then I'm being obedient. Okay. I don't think that's obedience. I think that's robbing God. If, if someone here is... Today, in 2023, and they're throwing a 5 or a 10 in the plate, and they're saying, that's all I have to give because I'm giving it joyfully, and so I'm obeying the New Testament commands. Remember, this also is a command. Regularly, disciplined, proportionate, and occasionally sacrificially. That's still not obeying the New Testament command. And the understanding of of the New Testament writers and of all of church history is that proportionate proportionate means what? 1%, 50%? It's 10%. That's the biblical understanding of what a tithe and a proportionate giving is. So this is one command area of obedience that God actually asks his people to test him on. And I would challenge you to do the same. If you're not currently giving according to scripture, as scripture lays out in chapter 16 here, test him. See if God will not ensure that your needs are met as you give regularly, disciplined, and in proportion to how he has blessed you. In addition to these orders and commands on giving, we find those marching orders in 13 and 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, these are the perfect general marching orders for the church. They really are. He's been very specific in the letter, but here he just kind of generalizes and gives them these directions. And because they're the perfect marching orders from the church in Corinth and those raw believers, they actually are perfect marching orders for the church today as well. So yes, they are still valid. Be watchful, meaning be observant. Stay awake. Stand firm in the faith, the faith that was delivered once and for all to the saints and now has been laid down and codified and set for us in scripture, immovable. We have it. Act like men, be strong. This doesn't mean that women need to act like men. It means that all believers should remain strong and courageous in the face of pressure to compromise or fall away from the faith, that, the instruction that he's been given to them and to us. And by the way, it usually is compromise, then fall away. It's small, gradual steps. It's usually not uh, once and for all, I wake up in the morning, I, I'm a faithful follower of Jesus and now I wake up and all of a sudden now I'm completely apostate, I'm leaving the church, I have more, nothing to do with Jesus. That doesn't happen very often. It's usually slowly one step at a time. Well, I'm going to let this slide. Well, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I don't know if I really need to do that. Or, yeah, I'm open to what this person is saying. That seems like the loving thing to do. Um, Satan doesn't attack by explosion. He attacks by erosion, little by little, just chipping away. That's why these are perfect marching orders. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be strong. On one hand, we have Paul telling the church, stay awake, stay strong, don't compromise. Show no weakness when it comes to standing on the truth of Jesus Christ. And then on the other hand, in these same marching orders, he says that everything you do must be done in love. Everything must be saturated in that genuine Christ-like agape love for one another and even for those who aren't in Christ. Let everything you do be done in love. This is the per- These are the perfect marching orders because, think about, if they only contain one of those parts. Think if think about this. If the marching orders just contain the first part, stand firm, no compromise, be alert. Well, if that's all we had, if we had this just kind of, um, be on your edge, get ready, stand, you know, brace yourself, then eventually I think all we would have are people in the church that would be kind of like... Um, a bunch of bulldogs just kind of removing themselves from the world and castling ourselves in the church, getting ready for a fight and and just locking down in all these areas with no grace or mercy or love. But if we just had the second part, if, if those were only marching orders, love, love, everything's love, do it all, but do it all in love, well then the church would eventually be filled with people that are afraid of offending the world because... We might be perceived as unloving and under those conditions it wouldn't take long for sound doctrine to disappear, Bible could not be preached authoritatively because um, the the gospel message and our need to repent um, might appear not loving enough neither of those situations would be pleasing to God so we get the marching orders that contain both and we need to get both of these right, yes don't compromise on the truth Um, don't move an inch on the gospel and on the truth of Jesus Christ. Don't waver for a moment on the inerrancy of scripture and always be reaching out in love to those who need to hear the gospel. Always be expressing that agape love to to our own brothers and sisters in Christ and to those who aren't in Christ. Resist that, that selfish inclination to be indifferent to those who are around us. So those are marching orders. Now it's up to the Holy Spirit to convince us which end of the spectrum we need to be walking back from a little bit. I'll leave that up to the Holy Spirit. Are you a bulldog? Are you someone who is constantly looking for threats to the gospel and upon finding one, immediately declare open war and scorched earth policy with no, with no grace or mercy? Do you, do you heap imprecatory prayers on your enemies without once praying for their salvation? Do you like to warn people of the reality of hell but gloss over the free and full pardon that even the most vile and evil offenders are assured of if they turn to Jesus in faith? Or are you someone who thinks that doctrine and creeds and confessions are cold and and detached and therefore stuffy Christians who are all, all head and no heart? Do you avoid speaking hard biblical truth to your unbelieving friends and family because one of your greatest fears is being perceived as unloving or that someone might not like you? Do you think the church doesn't need to call attention to the distinction between believers and unbelievers? We don't don't need to keep harping on that. Do you regularly tell people that God is love, but never tell them that he demands perfect righteousness, that he is wholly just and vengeful? Do you cite Jesus' acts of mercy and forgiveness but fail to mention that he calls people to repentance, costly discipleship, and obedience to the word of God? I think all of us tend to gravitate towards one of those two extremes. We're probably not, any of us are are sitting right on 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 the end, but we're probably gravitating towards one of those two. Our marching orders are clear. We need both, and please hear me. I'm not saying we need both kinds of people in the church to help balance it out, like we need the bulldogs and we need the love, of love. No, we need to each one of us be grasping and standing and holding on to both of those marching orders, both components. The command is to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men be strong, let all that you do be done in love. So that's our those are our marching orders, and so those are our prayers. Let's let's pray right now. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have given us all this instruction in this in this book to the Corinthians, but that you leave us with these marching orders. That it's not one or the other. It's not this bulldog like tenacious faith that, that refuses to give on anything, or uh, love, love, love that, that, that fails to, to approach any hard subject or, or shies away from any kind of confrontation or, or firm stand. Father, it's both. We see this perfectly modeled in Christ. Jesus was all truth and all love. So Father, that's what our prayer is for for ourselves. We ask that we would become more Christ-like, full of grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.